You're listening to The Razor's Edge. The Razor's Edge is an investing podcast. Your hosts are Akram's Razor, an investor and trader with decades of experience in markets, and me, Daniel Schwarzman, who has been focused on the market as a career for the past decade. We take investing ideas or themes we're interested in and break them down, or we speak with expert guests to get a wider understanding of a given topic. To get episodes of The Razor's Edge, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get podcasts. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you have a chance, or share this show with a friend. You can also check out our work on Seeking Alpha under our respective names, or reach us on Twitter at, at Daniel Shortman or at Akram's Razor. Our standard disclaimer and disclosure. The Razor's Edge is a Shortman Studios production. The views discussed belong to either Akram or me, respectively, or to our guests when we have them. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. We'll disclose any positions in any stocks discussed at the end of the podcast or during our introduction to the given episode. This week's episode features Mark Spiegel. If you know his name, you know that the conversation is going to be about Tesla. And that is going to be a, well, free-flowing conversation with adult language. Mark runs Stanfill Capital, a hedge fund, and is one of the longest-tenured, loudest, and most notorious members of Tesla Q, the short Tesla camp. Given the 1,100% move in Tesla shares since October 2019, that camp is increasingly a ghost town. But... With yesterday's inclusion in the S&P 500, the question is whether there's still electricity left in the bull case, or whether the bear case might finally bag its whale. We also touch on a few other topics ranging from microcap long ideas to inflation to Mark's Twitter presence, and I hope you'll enjoy this conversation. A few quick things before I get out of the way. We recorded this on November 23rd. It's still relevant, but you might hear some references that date the episode. Alas, the jokes about President Trump conceding the election are not dated. Mark mentioned seeking to avoid a ban on Twitter, and since then, his main account was suspended. Unrelated to this podcast or the mention he makes on it, I do believe. I'll use that to remind listeners that each of our views are our own personally and not necessarily shared by one another. In a non-episode note, I want to thank a couple Razor's Edge listeners for their support. Shout out to Makinsan, at Makinsan82, for his enthusiasm around the SaaS episodes we've been posting. We're not done with SaaS yet, I'm sure. And thank you to Brandy Brianna for her review on Apple Podcasts, which she titled Amazing Insight, writing, Discussion during this show is utterly fascinating, my favorite investment-related podcast by far. Thanks for all you do. That is awesome. Thank you so much, Brandy. Again, we love it when you leave reviews or get in touch with us. I should say this is our last episode of the year. We'll be back in the first week of January. We've already got a couple episodes lined up. We're really excited for 2021. Thank you for your support through 2020. It's been a long year, and we hope that we've brought a little bit of fun and insight into the markets in a wild stock market year and obviously a stressful year otherwise. Wishing you a safe and happy holiday season, and let's get 2021 started on the right note. Okay, disclosures. I have no positions in stocks mentioned. 
Akram is long Twitter, Mark is short Tesla, and long D-A-I-O, A-V-N-W, J-C-S, and EVOL, E-V-O-L. Let's get into it. All right, Mark, welcome on to the Razor's Edge. Good to have you here. Uh, thanks. This is the uh, second Razor's Edge. The first one was the Somerset Mon novel <laughs> that, that was made into a, a Bill Murray movie. I'm just trying to show you guys how erudite I am. It's not... I'm, there's a there's an eight. Not all oh, the, oh, not oh, all we, oh, we sexist, know by now. We know by now. Yeah, Thank yeah, you. It's not all sexist jokes like you see on Twitter. Anyway, <laughs> we we will. I do want to ask you about Twitter, but I want to start with Tesla, of course. And the we were talking about electric vehicles in general. Obviously, I, I was jotting down the numbers year to date last year and from the market bottom in march tesla's numbers are all over 500 percent. in some cases 600 percent. i guess just what's the before we dive into some there lots of places we can go but just give us high level what's the from your vantage point as somebody who has been one of the most notable bears if not the most notable bear for tesla what are you thinking right now what are you looking at well I mean, it's just, I mean, look, I've been saying this for a couple of years. The stock is is more decoupled from reality than anything I've ever seen. At least normally, when you get one of these bubble stocks, you know, you have like this amazing growth to go with it. But if you look at Tesla, in every single market where it's established, sales are basically flat or declining a little bit or declining more than a little bit, despite like continual price slashing. You know, like the only way they grew sales in the last few quarters was they put that factory in China and they got, you know, they were able to sell much more cheaply and they started selling cars there, but they haven't even grown China sales on a sequential monthly basis since May. So, you know, what is that? That's six months now or something like that. So, and Europe was down last quarter year over year. So I don't know what to say. I mean, it's just completely decoupled from reality. And, you know, you have a lot of people who understand this and just, avoid it and in hindsight smartly. And then you have, you know, you have a handful, and I don't think, by the way, I don't even think they matter, but you have a handful of these real whores on the sell side who just pretend none of that is happening. Like I've yet to see Adam Jonas or this idiot at Webbish who upgraded the stock today. I've yet to see them say, oh, by the way, Tesla monthly sales have been stuck between, you know, 11 and 12,000 since May every month in China, which is my huge growth story is China that, that they talk about. And despite the fact that they've continually slashed prices, I mean, yeah, they'll get a, they'll get a little bit of an uptick, maybe 20% when they start building the Model Y, but you know, they'll have to slash prices on that too. So the whole, the whole thing is ridiculous. The accounting, of course, is, is absurd. That's been called out by a lot of people. The, the biggest absurdity is probably the, without getting too far in the weeds, but it's probably that under-reserve on the warranty where they just basically can fraudulently inflate gross margin by like, I don't know, a couple hundred million a quarter, which is the difference between making money and not making money if you ignore the, the emission credits they sell, which basically go away after next year. So, uh, but the whole thing is absurd. I mean, I, I'm already way, way more in the weeds than anybody who's long this stock <laughs> ever got. I guarantee you they're not reading the SEC filings. It's, it's a bubble. And as you know, we were talking about, you know, before we started this podcast, I mean, it's now an entire EV sector bubble, right? I mean, today, this, this X, XPEV was up over 30% just today, and NEO was up more. And, you know, we're talking about companies, those companies are selling like 
I don't know, maybe a few thousand cars a month. At least Tesla is selling whatever, maybe 40,000 cars a month or whatever the hell they're doing. I mean, which is a joke also. So you basically have Tesla was already worth almost as much as the entire rest of the auto industry combined. But now that you have these other Chinese companies involved, probably the three of them are, are almost certainly worth more than the entire rest of the industry combined. And yet the rest of the industry is not sitting still. I mean, right now in Europe, VW is crushing Tesla and electric cars. And, you know, that's just a forerunner of what's going to happen worldwide with all kinds of competitors. So the whole, the whole thing is just nuts. So I want to start, and this is pulling back out of the weeds a little bit, and it's going to be, compared to your experience with the stock, it's going to be somewhat facile. But I look at Tesla's 10Q, their most recent one, and I, I don't have, I forget if I have the automotive numbers, but total revenues were up something like 40%. And year-to-date revenues up something like 20%, gross profits going up, operating cash flow, CapEx, all kind of going up. And I looked at Ford for comparison, and Ford was up something like 1% or 2% this quarter, but year-to-date, they're down more than 20%, I think. So I guess you're basically, what you kind of implied there was that's all basically them getting into new markets, mainly China. But Yeah, I mean, look at, look at revenue in, if we're, if we're talking about Q3, look at year-over-year. Europe, they were down. Look at year over the year, the U- U.S., I believe they were down, despite the introduction of the Model Y, or if they weren't, they were sort of flat. They were up big in China because, because having the factory there let them save a lot of money on tariffs and stuff. But they haven't grown in China since, since the run rate of Q2. So, yeah. I think to Mark's point, Daniel, going back to a stock like Zoom in the pandemic, Zoom has essentially tripled its business and the stock is up 6x. Tesla, essentially, if you want to have this conversation, like you said, when there's bubbles in stocks, you typically can't ascribe it to something, right? And for those of us who traded the tech bubble, and that's where I first started trading, you can see like, you know, there is that period where there was crazy demand for fiber and rollout of networks. And that was a CapEx bust of sort. But you look at Tesla and you say, all right, we have a pandemic. It like it 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 crushed the automotive market, and you you are making a compare here, where yes, the, like flat may be essentially relatively speaking decent for them, in in, not, in terms not of what's for a company with a with a PE of a thousand or exactly. whatever. And, and and by the way, their market share is also getting destroyed. I mean, they had when there weren't a lot of serious competitors, they had market share in Europe, which is which was well over thirty percent, and now it's this quarter they'll be lucky if they have ten percent market share. And, you know, the fact that they're going to be down year over year in Europe, but yet the electric car market is probably going to be up 100% in Europe. So it's not even as if, well, their share is down, but they're growing a lot because the pie is growing so big. Well, the pie is growing, but they're shrinking within a growing pie at this point, at least in Europe. I mean, Europe is the, is the most competitive EV market in the world. And it's kind of a bellwether for what you're going to see because because the government is mandating all these cars to build these EVs, so they are. And, and really, they're just starting, a lot of them are just starting to come out now, particularly, you know, the Volkswagen ID3s and 4s and the Volvos, Polestar Volvos, and then the actual Volvo electrics are all just coming out this quarter. And of course, Mercedes has barely gotten involved. They only have one model, but they have a boatload of cars coming out. So Europe shows you where the world is going, and it's ugly for Tesla. And now China is maybe six months behind Europe. And now China's starting to show you where the world is going, where all these competitors are growing like crazy. And 
all these European cars from the VW group are about to get rolled out in Europe and then from Mercedes. And, and next year, you're going to see really disappointing numbers, at least relative to expectations in Europe. The only place Tesla is still doing well, although I don't know, I don't think they're actually growing anymore, is in the US because most of the EVs, they haven't bothered selling them here, but that's going to start now soon. And of course, it'll especially start if, if Biden can get the, the biggest boondoggle there is, which is that- I don't know what you're talking dollar. about there, Mark. We're yeah. not done yet. We're not done yet with this election. So you better hold your hope. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Which is, you know, that, that, that thing. So then, you know, then you're going to see them all, every, every one of those cars that you see in Europe crushing Tesla, they're going to come over here and it's going to be the same thing. The one advantage Tesla has had from a marketing standpoint where it matters more here than there is their claimed range. And they're completely, if they're not making up the number, they're completely gaming the EPA system to come up with numbers that are typically at least 20% better than their real world range and, and often 30% better. And, and that's like in, in regular weather. You know, how, are like they, how, how are they gaming it? Go, go into that a little bit. Well, I don't know. I mean, Car and Driver had a pretty detailed article about it last month, but that, that assumes they're not just making up the number because they're apparently self-reporting to EPA. And, and anyone who tests their cars, they're drastically worse than claimed. And yet on the other hand, the Porsche Taycan I mean, Porsche has always been conservative on their performance stats, you know, like they'll claim, well, we go zero to 60 and three, but it's really 2.6 or whatever. Well, you know, they, they only claimed like, I don't know, 205 miles of EPA for the Taycan. In the real world, everyone's getting like 270 with it. And in fact, Edmonds just posted an article. I retweeted it the other day where the Model Y only got like 250 or something versus the claimed well over 300. And the Taycan got 270. It might have even been worse. I think their Taycan got over 300 miles or something. So it was like an 80-mile difference. Anyway, the point is that they're marketing numbers that are complete bullshit in terms of the real world. Whereas, for instance, you know, the electric Hyundais and stuff, if they are the Bolt, when they claim 239 miles or 248 or whatever, that's actually what they get in the real world. So if Tesla weren't able to, let's say, mislead people about real-world range by claiming phony EPA numbers, They'd probably be doing a lot worse here in the U.S. also. Eventually, this is all going to catch up with them. I mean, obviously, we all know about the suspension breakage, which we've known about for years. And finally, China demanded a recall. And today, one of the guys on Twitter, he goes under Lewis Carruthers or their boot. Very smart guy. You know, he posted, finally, there's a class action lawsuit here in the U.S. about that. I mean, it's, I'm not telling you guys anything you don't know. It's just a scummy scummy company led by a, a, an amoral sociopath, but eventually it's going to catch up to them. But look, I mean, I, the, I'll tell you the most shocking thing about Tesla having a market cap now of something like half a trillion dollars. It is not, and you guys know this, it is not easy to move a four or $500 stock trading 40, 50 million shares a day. I mean, this thing today, I'm looking at it now, it traded like 26 or 27 billion dollars worth of stock, you know. In, okay, in so that's a, that's a good point, Mark, and that, that's what what explains this thing doing daily volume, daily value equal to more than Apple, and it's been doing it pretty consistently on on its path from let's call it 150 billion to 500. I, you know, I have no explanation. I mean, the obvious explanation now is is funds buying ahead of the the S and P inclusion, which would make some sense, although. 
a big chunk of that buying is probably almost done by now, you know, assuming they do 20% of the day's volume was going into that. I don't know. But I mean, it's, it's done it since January, right? So like, yeah, I, mean, I don't have an explanation. And, uh, and nobody way, does. And by the right, exactly. I mean, you know, I've gotten to know some pretty famous people running a hell of a lot more money than I am who have been short this thing. And everyone says the same thing. No one's ever seen anything like this in their entire careers. This is just brand new. I mean, you've seen bubbles before. You've seen bubble companies, but you've never seen a you've never seen a, a bubble company that was a this big and b so completely impervious to the facts. Like the growth story dies, and they come up with a new story. And this is the kind of stuff you see on microcap biotech or microcap tech. They're inventing this and that, and it didn't work. But no one's ever seen it on a, on a company this big. I want to go to the competition because that, you know, and I remember editing your work and we met back in the day, sort of towards the beginning of your time with Tesla. Yeah. <laughs> and it was a very competition focused thesis. And I know it's great. And we'll go into, I think it's grown to incorporate a little bit more of the CEO behavior and everything. But, but it is mostly, you're 100% right. That's always been my thesis is like, there's nothing special here. The, the harder thing is manufacturing high quality cars, not putting an electric motor in instead of a gas motor. You're, you're exactly right. I was way too early on this. I, because but, that's, that's what I wanted to ask is why don't you think that's played out yet? I mean, like what, because I feel like there's, I'm not a car guy, but I know you've brought up Okay, I'll answer, your question. Yeah. I'll, I'll answer your question. Fundamentally speaking, well, two things. Fundamentally speaking, it wasn't too early four years ago or five years ago when I first started harping on this because all these companies were saying, hey, in five years, we're going to have X, Y, and Z. And you'd think the market would be discounting that, but it didn't. It paid no attention. Now, it's certainly, again, speaking fundamentally, not in bubble terms, it shouldn't be too early because you see it showing up in the numbers, right? I mean, Tesla European market share is like a, a double diamond ski slope going down. And, and we see things flattening out here. We, we see things flattening out in China. It's actually in the numbers. And of course, you know, you can read the reviews where, the, where people say the Taycan is better than any Tesla, where people say the, the Polestar 2 is like certainly the equal of the Model 3. It's just different. Model 3 is a little lighter and sportier. The Polestar 2 is much nicer, you know, better built, pick your poison kind of deal. So the competition is there now in the showrooms. The VW ID3 is, has gotten very good reviews. It's selling like crazy. It's probably 90% of the Tesla for $10,000 less. It's just a little bit, not quite as quick, but it's better built and it's, you know, I think a better interior. Anyway, so. That's a long-winded answer to, no, I don't think it's too soon to talk about the competition because now people can't say, well, that's in five years. It's happening now. It's happening right now, and it's in the numbers, and still the, the, the stock seems impervious to it. Right. How much going on here? We're going to talk a lot about irrationality, but there is, at least in the U.S., there is that sort of, whether it's we talk a lot about Elon Musk marketing through his Twitter account and what that means for Twitter shareholders and what they're missing out well, look, on. I mean, you have to appreciate a certain element with this thing is, I mean, we, we had Rajiv on recently, who's a, a huge fan. He loves the product, loves the car and owns the stock. And you have people who have gotten like when you make 10 times your money in a year, you're, you're a cult to look, any, to any person who owns it. You're not going to be able to rationally have any conversation with anyone who's accumulated that much wealth right. that so, quickly. 
So I don't even bother. I don't even bother. But I'll tell you this. You show me anybody who says, oh, I love my Tesla 10 years ahead. I guarantee you, I guarantee you 100% that person has never driven a Taycan. They've never driven a Polestar 2. They've probably never driven the, the Volkswagen ID3, which isn't even in this country yet, but, but it's in Europe. They probably have not driven even the Mercedes EQC or the Audi e-tron, which is, you know, the Audi is, is certainly heavier than the Tesla. It's not as spry, but it's a much nicer interior and much better built. And, you know, it, it's it, less range, partially because of all that extra weight. But I mean, you, we're at the point now where there are some electric cars are better than the Tesla and some of them are better in some ways and the equal in other ways and not quite as good in other ways, but it's like a real car market now, right? But these guys have not driven any of those. All they've driven is their Tesla and, you know, maybe a Nissan Leaf that they owned before that or a Prius. But you're right. You know, you can't, I mean, listen, a good investor could say, yeah, I made 10 times my money. It got way out of hand. It's crazy. And yeah, there are good cars out there, but these guys are like in a cult. The only mystery is how do you have a, a, a large enough cult you know, S&P inclusion notwithstanding, how do you have a large enough cult to support a four or five hundred billion dollar market cap? A cult stock was like mankind on the inhalable <laughs> insulin years ago, right? Or, uh. or um, research frontiers with the windows that that guy Asensio used to write about, you know, or, you know, whatever. I mean, you know what a cult, uh, you know, iOmega back in 2000, Herb Greenberg used to write about iOmega, you know. And, and he used to call them Iomegans, I think. I mean, th that's a cult. A cult is a few hundred million dollars, maybe a Beringo, 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 which was going to put Google out of business on the patents. Beringo. I, you know, I, I don't even know that one. I barely heard of that. But it was, what's, uh, what's his name? The uh, the guy Al who wrote the- Altusher. That was an Altusher. Uh, James Altusher. Oh, oh, that guy. Yeah, what a, what a anyway. Um, <laughs> I, but I have, an, I, don't, I have enough enemies. I don't need to make new ones. But anyway, the point is that how do you get a cult supporting a stock trading 20, 30 billion a day? It's crazy. Now, obviously, look, a lot of this run, we all know, was the, the, the call option buying, right? I mean, they, the, the phrase, I use, phrase I learned, because I'm not an options trader, was gamma squeeze. But basically, it just, I knew what was going on. Okay, with. so let's go, I mean, let's go back to that, because I remember you and I talking last year, right before this started. It was kind of dead. Stock was trading around pre-split $220. And I'd messaged you and I was like, I'm thinking about the, the the IV on these Tesla options is nothing. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, it's how is this? How can I double my money on an 8% move? Why don't yeah. I buy some puts, straddle it, whatever? And I and I had ended up straddling it like 80% weighted to the the put side, but 20% in like some stupid calls. And then, you know, it, it comes out when we'd had this conversation that he's most likely going to show some sort of profit, maybe, but like nobody, if you talk to anybody, and I didn't just talk to you, I talked to many people about it. Nobody thought there was anything about that quarter that was newsworthy. Correct. So what, that so was what less than a year ago. And well, from so, then on, it went, it went batshit crazy. Well, what we had here, well, one thing that was driving it batshit crazy was, you know, was the anticipation of S&P inclusion. But of course, that's been bought and paid for <laughs> nine times over by now. But the other thing was the call option game playing, right? It's, it's outright manipulation, but it's probably legal manipulation. I'm not saying it's not legal, but guys would buy a fucking shitload of short dated calls way out of the money and obviously force the call sellers to buy the stock to hedge the calls they just sold. And it became like, you know, a self 
a self-propelled, self-fulfilling spiral all the way up. The higher the stock got, the more they had to buy the hedge, and then people would buy the next round of calls and, and whatever. And that drove this thing. But, it, uh, but again, you'd have to say, well, okay, but why just Tesla? Why? Now, it did happen on some other stocks, but nothing like Tesla. And, and how did they pull that off on such a massive company? And the reason is, I think they realized that a lot of Tesla stock was in very firm hands. So normally, you know, you own a stock that's $400 a share and it spikes on no reason whatsoever to $430. And a normal fund manager is like, okay, I'm going to take some off and sell into this spike. And that tamps down the spike. Well, the, the, this had cult guys like, like Ron Barron, who's like, oh, this is, there's only 11 moving parts and Elon's going to take over the world. And, and then and you have like Capital Re, which shocks me that they have this huge position and they've sold very little. The only thing is Bailey Gifford did take 40% off the table last quarter. But I think for a while, people assumed and probably correctly that Bailey Gifford wasn't a seller. So when you have no sellers, you can play those games. Try playing those games, you know, even with Google or Apple and the stock's going to get smacked down. It's not going to stay up like that on no news. But I guess the question is, is isn't that how do you factor in how much of that is an advantage for Tesla from three, I guess, three angles? First, they have a shareholder base that and not that whoever's doing the manipulation. I'm not talking about that, but just you have a shareholder base who's forgiving. You have a customer base who probably it's a feature that they haven't tried the other cars because <laughs> they're never going to try the other cars because they love Tesla. And Tesla. Well, let me stop you there, though. Because they might not try their other cars, but their neighbors will. You look at the the percentage of people in this country who own a Tesla, right? And it's tiny. And when their neighbor is shows up with a Polestar, and the guy at the country club shows up with the Taycan, the other guy shows up with the new Audi GT. You're going to see that. Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I just wanted to. I just wanted to say that eventually they're going to realize that there are all these other cars are out there, and they're great cars, and their neighbors are going to tell them about it. That's what I'm saying. And then they're going to be like, oh, this isn't. They'll be the last people to realize how unspecial Tesla has become. Yeah, I mean, that's we're still counting on the rationality of people meeting people in person, which. But I mean, is that, even, but. Is, is that even part of the conversation at this point with it? I mean, you have so many people here. So I, I can think of several people who will cite the autonomous driving element of the car presently as one of their favorite things. And I actually got to under COVID drive a, a Model X autonomously for a few days. And I mean, what I mean, it is cool. There's, there is no denying that in terms of uh, where it is as far as how mature that is relative to other ones you could test on the road well, so far. Well, but you got to realize there's, there's two things. Number one, first of all, the GM system is better, but it's much safer because they, they limit it to, to limited access interstate highways. Consumer Reports compared them and said GMs is better. But the other thing is, it's just the Tesla is a lot more reckless, right? I mean, Audi actually was going to install a level three system in the current A8 that was supposed to be out in that car like two years ago. And then they said, you know what? We're going to pull back. We're just not going to do it yet. And that, and that thing has a LiDAR in the grill or it had one. So what these people don't realize is, you know, GM could do on secondary roads what Tesla's doing. BMW could, Mercedes could. They're just not that reckless. <laughs> you know? So again, when did I realize that? I don't know. Look, obviously... Look, there's another factor here. And by the way, Daniel, I'm sorry, I interrupted you because you were going to cover well, a third thing. And it might be that might be the other factor, which is Tesla. And they've done this a little bit, right? But they could go to market and raise a ton of cash. I mean, 
I feel like the you know where I, maybe we can ask about where Tesla Q has gone, but they've been able to. There's a that reflexivity at some point. The fact okay. that they're valued becomes reality. Okay, so two things. First of all, yeah, I mean, I I haven't tacked a Q on in a really long time, although I still have it on my license plate just because I think it's funny. <laughs> I bought that license plate from New York, but but yeah, I mean, obviously bankruptcy, at least in any foreseeable time, that's obviously off the table. But plenty of companies, internet bubble companies, sold below cash when when the bubble broke. So yeah, I don't think they're going to be bankrupt, but they've got 15 billion in debt. And if this business is essentially worth, you know, an enterprise value of, if anything, of $20 billion, you know, there's a billion shares outstanding. So, okay, so you know, I'll be wrong and it won't be a zero, but it'll be $5. It'll be down 99% or whatever, like a lot of internet garbage was. So that, that's my answer on the, on the cash thing. What I was getting at was the, the other enormous mystery here is, is the regulatory environment and the fact that, you know, they have this crazy, you know, what they call autopilot and what they call full self-driving out on the street. And I mean, for God's sake, the NTSB, the National Transportation Safety Board, which investigates accidents, said Tesla is severely at fault in these crashes. And they asked NHTSA to please ban this thing or make them change the marketing and put better driver monitoring in. And then NHTSA outright said, no, we're not going to do that. And NHTSA, I mean, NTSB actually held a press conference. I don't know if you guys remember that beginning of this year explicitly to talk about how NHTSA was ignoring their recommendations. So, you know, there's that, there's the EPA stuff on, on their range. I mean, there's the, there's the accounting, which, which we pointed out, clear, huge discrepancies. And these guys just seem to have a, a regulatory get out of jail free card. Now, some of that is, is just Trump's appointees just tended to be totally hands off on everything. And maybe we're not seeing Tesla style crazy behavior from the other OEMs because they play long ball and they're like, okay, maybe we could put these dangerous things on the road, but we don't want to do it and kill people. And Musk doesn't care because Musk just manages to the next quarter and he's a sociopath. So maybe there's a benign explanation or maybe there's a less benign explanation as to why. I mean, Montana skeptic Lawrence has written articles about how Tesla deceived New York State. Nothing happened. How they've deceived California, nothing happened. Ed Niedermeyer wrote a great book about Tesla. What, what the hell was it called? It was called, uh, it came out like last year. Ludicrous. Ludicrous. That was the name of Ed's book, Ludicrous. I mean, he literally cited completely fraudulent things that Musk and Tesla had done over the years with this thing with evidence, and like nobody cared. So I don't know. That's the other great mystery. Why? Okay, you can have a bunch of idiots who own the stock who don't care. How come the regulators are giving them a free pass? I mean, is Musk buying the most incredible lobbying? Is there something else more nefarious than that going on? I don't know. I don't have the answer. I only have the questions. Yeah, I feel like betting on regulators has been a disappointing, <laughs> disappointing bet for. Well, well, look, I mean, you know, oh, Jim Chanos wow. always talked about financial regulators, and he, you know, he says they're archaeologists. They're not, you know, they come in policemen. Yeah, and but but you know, today. NHTSA forced a 6 million car recall on GM for, for these airbag inflators that, you know, that, that have been bad, uh, whatever that Japanese company. And for the first time ever, GM put in the press release 
this comes right out of Musk's attitude, it seems. We strongly disagree with NHTSA. We've run our own tests and we think these things are safe, but they're forcing us to do it. So we acknowledge that and we'll do it. I mean, in the past, in my experience, usually these companies did not want to piss off their regulators like that. They were afraid of them. That's one reason. But the other thing is they forced, as we call it, of six million cars. There's been nothing on the suspensions. Again, Ed Niedermeyer, who wrote Ludacris, you know, they, he used to have this blog. It's still up there, but I don't think they contribute to it anymore because Daily Kanban. In 2016, they had detailed photos of broken Tesla suspensions and people getting them fixed under NDA as long as they wouldn't tell anybody about them. You can find a massive number of reports from owners on, on the NHTSA website about these things. By the way, along with also a massive number of sudden, sudden acceleration reports, and NHTSA literally has done nothing. So they forced this thing on GM, but they've still done nothing on Tesla. So, you know, look, I could speculate as to what's going on, but it's just speculation. I don't have an answer. There's, you mentioned the financial regulators, and earlier you mentioned the under reserving of the warranties. That's an area, you know, for us as investors, that's an easier thing for us to kind of parse out. And I know Einhorn, for example, David Einhorn has raised questions about accounts receivable and the end of quarter stuff. Like there have been a lot of questions raised. And I guess the question is not so much on the regulator side, but are you surprised? I know there's been a handful of whistleblowers coming from Tesla. I can't remember their names or specifics. Yeah, but it was, that was small beer stuff, those guys in Nevada. I mean, it was big. It was big to them. It fucked up their lives and it was real illegal stuff they were able to prove, you know, both phone hacking and you know, accounting stuff, capitalizing stuff that should have been written off, whatever. But, you know, the thing I always tell people, I mean, you get some of the Tesla Q guys, you know, get insane about this stuff. And I don't blame the guys whose lives are fucked up, but I'm talking about other guys. And I'm like, guys, you got a company here that's got a billion shares outstanding. If they have to restate because they did the wrong thing with inventory, 150 million of inventory, you're looking at 15 cents a share. Nobody's going to give a shit anymore. This thing is now of a size where that kind of stuff doesn't matter. That's the big advantage of, of where they are now, frankly. So, it's, so it all is going to circle back to what 95% of my... I hate that. I hate the word thesis, but 95% of my thesis has been on this for like six years now, which is competition is inevitable. There's no special sauce. They're just building cars. And it's a hell of a lot easier to build an electric motor than an internal combustion motor that meets modern emission standards with all the metallurgy involved and, and all the electronics. So that's happening now. But I'm shocked that despite the fact that that's happening, the stock doesn't seem to care. So I don't know. I'm, listen, we're short. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. I mean, everything converges to reality eventually. And we have a core short position. And I, I trade around that a little bit. I had a stop set, which, which saved me quite a bit on the S&P inclusion, because I suspected it could happen one day. That's actually a funny story. I'll tell you their story real quick. The stock closed that day around 408. And, you know, my, my prime broker that I use is IB, Interactive Brokers. And you can set you can set stops from 8 a.m. I'm sorry, from 4 a.m. to 8 p.m. There, unlike most other brokers, like you can say if it you know trades through 4:12 or whatever, you know you know cover this much stock. So I I literally at, at a quarter to five I 
I lay down on my couch to take a nap because I was wiped out. And normally when I do this, I turn off my phone, which I did. I turn off my iPad ringers and I turn off the computer volume. I forgot to turn off the computer volume and I'm sound asleep. And all of a sudden, I don't know if you guys use IP, but when an order executes, it's like ding, ding, ding. All of a sudden I hear ding, ding, ding. And I'm like, holy fuck. I said, I'll bet anything it's exactly 5.15 and they just got in the S&P because there's no other reason why my stops you know, would have been going off like that. And sure enough, I look at my watch, I wake up all groggy and it's like 5.15 in 15 seconds. And then another set of stops went off before I was even able to get off the couch and come over to the computer and see what the hell is going on. So <laughs> that, you know, that saved us to a large extent. And now I've, I've reloaded that position, keeping a core. But, you know, it's, it's definitely cost us a lot of money this month. There's, I'm not going to say it hasn't, but we're actually having a very good month. I mean, we're having a, a lousy year, but, you know, as of right now, I think we're up on the month, despite this crazy Tesla stuff. I think we're up about 8% because I, I've had a couple, one in particular, huge winners on the, on the long side, and the rest of my shorts haven't, haven't hurt us too badly this month. But we definitely we'd be up a lot more this month, this year, and for the last four years, if uh, if I had never had a Tesla position, but that's hindsight. You can only look today and say, "Here's a five hundred trillion dollar valuation on a company with all these problems." The yeah, I mean, I guess uh, you've sort of already answered it, but the like how you manage your book is you're you're a nano cap focused guy, as far as I remember. You I remember theses on the little pharmaceutical company you found with the pain medicine and oh, funny, you have a really good memory. That's a funny story. Let me tell you that story. That was, it was named after, what the hell, they renamed the company since then. Uh, Ramoxy was the drug. What the hell was the name of the company? It used to be with a P and now I'm not seeing it. I'm looking at your, uh, it wasn't Dusa. That is something Dusa is another one I owned. That was a huge home run before I had the fund. That actually gave me a, a big chunk of the money I needed to open the fund. Pain Therapeutics, PTIU. That that's, that that's what it so, was. That was one. Yeah, I had I had bought that was a, a nano cap. I had bought a good size position in that. It was up really nicely. And then I see this, I see this article one night on Bloomberg. I was actually visiting my dad, I'll never forget in Arizona. And like my stomach fell because basically there was a similar pain medication, you know, where the warranty was was overturned in a patent case. And I'm like, holy fuck, these this stock's gonna collapse tomorrow because you know, this is like no one needs to pay up for their IP if you can essentially duplicate it generically. So I call up this friend of mine who was a really smart biotech analyst. He's now out of the business. He couldn't take the bubble anymore. But anyway, really smart guy. The guy's name is Jeff. And I tell him this. He goes, Mark, he goes, this is such a fucking bubble. You have nothing to worry about. You'll be able to unload everything you have and get nicely short before anybody puts any other you know, reaction in the stock. He was 100% right. I sold out my whole position and got short, barely denting the stock. And then I wound up making money on the short side on that thing after having made it on the long side. But you're right. I mean, nano caps, deep value nano caps are where I've made all of my money. And, and I've made probably twice as much as all of my money. And then the other big chunk of it went away on the shorts. <laughs> well, so with Tesla, it's such a, I mean, we were talking, you know, again, all those other Blink and EPEV. <laughs> And it's like, so first of all, you could argue that Tesla is the best house in a terrible neighborhood, but also like, how do you make sure that you're not, and because it seems at least publicly, and I want to ask about Twitter again in a little bit, but like publicly, it seems like Tesla takes up a lot of your time. So how do you manage 
both the energy and the book so that you're not because it is just a stock that can so, so go up every question. day. So it's amazing how little time the companies I buy take up. And yet, you know, I'll say this very factually, just as factually as I've gotten destroyed on Tesla and my index shorts have hurt, you know, since I put them back on again, a few weeks off the lows this spring, I've had a huge success ratio on nano caps because I buy them really, really cheaply. They're simple companies and, and they're easy to understand. And I buy them with a, with a giant margin for error. The only one I've bought since I've opened the fund, I think, that's been a loser for me was this company, Westel. And that's because I broke a cardinal rule. I, I bought a company that had B shares and the B shares are controlled by, you know, a bunch of real schmucks on the board, you know, and they basically wrecked the company and they just took it private or they took it dark. Anyway, but other than that, the, I don't know, I can spend a few hours and basically figure out one of these little companies. And I picked them up mostly through valuation screens. And it's a really small universe in this, in this bubble of you know, little companies that, you know, that are selling at some fraction of sales rather than a multiple of sales. So I get to know them pretty well. And I'm like, and I'll do my screens every day. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I know that one. I know that one. I know that one. And I own this one and that one. So it doesn't take a lot of time. Now, what I miss out on, I mean, very frankly, is I miss out on really great growth stories. I mean, I've had a lot of doubles and triples. And some things I've sold as a triple that went on to quadruple or quintuple that were turnaround stories. But I've never bought a company that I can remember, you know, for like two times revenue and had it go up to 10 times revenue. It's just, if it's two times revenue, I don't even look at it. That's why I sell it. So maybe I could spend more time looking for those, but it just, it doesn't fit my nature. I like to buy something where if they blow the quarter, not that much bad can happen because it's like so fucking cheap and beaten down already. So it leaves me a lot of time to read all kinds of stuff all day. Tesla doesn't take a lot of my time. I mean, I tweet about it when I see a story, you know, but I don't spend fundamentally at this point. I mean, I just read the filings, but there's, there's nothing, there's no other fundamental time to spend on this, right? There's nothing new here. It is what it is. It's a decoupled bubble. So it, it, it's not costing me long, it's not costing me long ideas to be short. Tesla. If anything, it fills time. And if I'm busy, I don't tweet about Tesla. You know, I get busy with other stuff, you know? Got it. What's a, if you don't mind sharing, what's an example of one of your longs either that's working or that you like right now? Well, the, the one that's been an absolute home run for us, and it was just so obvious to me for so long. And I, look, I'm not, I mean, it's still a very, very large position for us, but it's had such a huge run that if I were looking at this, as cheap as it still is, I would be, have a really hard time coming in and buying this right now where it is, even though I didn't sell any today. I, I took a little bit off, I think, last week. AVNW, Aviat Networks, they, they make um, microwave transmitters for like wireless right. backhaul, right? Basically, you got a tower in the middle of nowhere, and you're not going to lay fiber out there because it's middle of nowhere. So you put these microwave dishes. I mean, I bought this thing at like... it's. It's got all they, everything I buy is net cash. I never, I almost never buy anything with net debt. I think I bought this at like fifteen percent of revenue on an EV basis. It's got like thirty something percent margin. It just had never grown for a long time. But in January, it's got this activist on the board, Steel Partners, and in January they brought in this guy. If you read the press release, 
reading between the lines, he's like, we want him to fix this company and sell it. Because basically, Pete fixed this other company and sold it. Pete fixed this other company and sold it. Now we brought him in to run. Obvious. So it's had a huge run if you look at the chart. It, it actually it got slammed with everything else in the spring, and I added a lot more at seven. And and you know and and I've taken a little bit off on the way, and now it's a, now it's thirty two dollars, and and I still think fair value for it is like mid forties, even without crazy bubbleness. So that's one that's that's been the big winner that basically gave us a really good month despite Tesla and despite some of our other, you know despite the other shorts. The the other one I own, I have a really big position. It's a little company, and I can recommend this because I was a buyer here not not too long ago. Company called DAIO, Data IO. And it's funny, this is an example of one. I bought this, I don't know, X years ago, like in the twos. And I thought it was sort of fair value at like seven, eight dollars. And I sold it and it ran to 16. Like I never get the end of the move. And then it collapsed again. And then I rebought it in the twos and, and the threes, like this year. They make chip programming equipment. And it's actually, it's a completely undiscovered play on electric cars. And I mentioned this once on Twitter, maybe a month ago. You could probably find the post. And I thought about doing it today. And I'm like, you know what? I don't want to be, sound like some skeeve playing the... <laughs> Jumping playing on the, the train. So instead, I'll sound like a skeeve in your podcast and say that, <laughs> say that they program ASICs and a lot of their businesses was auto OEMs. And like the more sophisticated the entertainment systems get and the more sophisticated these electric motor and battery control systems are, the higher the chip content. And so it's really a sort of an undiscovered place. Oh, you're, you're sounding like a Tesla autonomous bull. <laughs> well, it's not Tesla autonomous, but no, I get other it. people. Um, but, but, but any, you know, te- Tesla, you know, without LIDAR, it's, it's not going to happen for them and Musk, you know, anyway. But anyway, so I own that one and that's, that's pretty cheap on EV to revenue. And it looks like they're turning around and CEO's a good, honest guy. I've known him for a long time. When the mark, when it's going to suck, he tells you. You know, it's like we own a lot of that. There's a, there's a tiny little company, and I tweeted about this. I think ticker is EVOL, and they actually make like software systems for cell phone companies to to do marketing and like get people hooked up once their phone arrives in the mail, kind of a thing. And they just put to a really good earnings report and. These guys have like gross margins in like the 65% range, I think. And I don't know, they're selling it. I don't know. I'd have to look 50% of revenue or something like that. And they just, they just posted a quarter, like with really good growth to the point where I added stock after that, after that quarter. Right. Yeah. It was a big jump. It looks like. Yeah. I mean, it was an amazing quarter. I'm like, yeah, so they're selling at 0.77 times revenue, right? But they have gross margins of over 60%. So, you know, these are the kind of companies I buy. And, and the reason I'm able to buy them and, and accumulate positions in this bubble market are twofold. One, they're so tiny that a guy running real money could never touch them. For him to put on a, a 5% or a 3% position, he would quadruple the stock of a guy's running a billion dollars. It's a very inefficient little market here, but it also doesn't scale. Like I couldn't buy these companies if I were running hundreds of millions of dollars. And and then the other thing is, I tend to buy them when they haven't grown for a long time. Sometimes they're slightly shrinking and people just don't give a shit about them. You know, they're like, oh, that thing has been around forever. It's never going to happen. 
But my attitude on these is, look, if I'm buying my bogey on these companies, and I did it for all of them, is to buy them at or below one times annual gross profit. Not one times revenue, but like they're doing 50 in revenue with a 50% gross margin. I want to pay 25 for the company on an EV basis. And they typically have a lot of cash. And my attitude is if I buy it that cheap, it'll either get fixed or some acquirer will come, come along, right? And pay one or one and a half times revenue for it or whatever. So I don't mind buying and sitting on them for months and sometimes a few years, you know, and then they get discovered and, and boom, I've made my money. But again, I mean, all these great gains in the last few years have been eaten up, you know, by the shorts, the Tesla short and the index. So it, yeah, it's it like is very, what it is. Very, you know? very opposing strategies. The, the, the most actively traded stock on the, on the planet Earth and then on the polar opposite end, <laughs> the companies that you know you're you're finding these undiscovered kind of left for what was it, the the old expression you're paying cigarette butt prices. Well, well, so okay, so so cigar butt companies is usually different, not always from what I buy. The cigar butt company was, you know, like the buggy whip maker, and they're going to be out of business in in another ten or fifteen years, but. The cigar butt, the cigar was lying in the, in the, on the street and there's a few puffs left in it. That was the way um, Buffett used to describe it, right? And I think he got that from, from what's his name, Ben? Um, ben Graham, yeah. Yeah, Graham or whatever. Or maybe, maybe that's a Munger expression, the cigar. I, try, I don't buy cigar butt companies. I'm not going to buy today's equivalent of a Yellow Pages company. There's a couple of radio companies and newspaper companies, which look really cheap. I'm not going to buy those. I buy companies, they tend to be, they tend to be like little niche tech companies, but easy to understand kind of tech, where they're either gonna go steady and not do anything, or somebody will come in and shake them up and and boom, they're gonna take off. Yeah. I mean it's I, I like companies like that where you have sort of clean balance sheet and it's like an empty bucket where it shouldn't be too hard for the bucket to fill if something goes right one way or the other. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'll tell you the risk. The risk with these companies is if the balance sheet is too good, if there's too much cash, sometimes the CEO blows it on a really fucking stupid acquisition. And like there's one I bought, I bought it right. I bought it, you know, when things crashed and I bought it like I think probably in the threes. And I just sold, I just sold it literally Friday and, and the rest of it today. Ticker is ASYS and cheap on EV to revenue, except disappointing earnings report and disappointing guidance. And the CEO explicitly said twice in a row, he said, hey, you know, we got a lot of cash. And if I can find something to buy, I'm paraphrasing. If I can buy something to buy, I'm going to buy it. Well, I'm not interested in a guy blowing that cash on, you know, on something that somebody wants to sell him. Uh, in this market, it's gonna, he's going to be overpaying guaranteed, right? So if, if the company has too much cash, believe it or not, I will often avoid it. Well, there's, oh, there are a lot of empire builders down here too, right? I've been in <laughs> a couple of these companies that they set an explicit goal, and I'm in one now, and we'll see, but the explicit goal is $100 million in revenue, and that's like the magic number. And yeah, it leads to some weird incentives and some potentially questionable situations, like you said. Yeah. So if acquisition potential is highlighted, if a guy's not like, we're going to grow this organically, you know, like DAIO has been like, we're going to grow this organically, 
you know, and, and AVNW has been pretty much, we're going to grow this organically. You know, if I find a little tuck-in acquisition, okay, but I'm interested in that. There's one I own, ticker is JCS, and it's actually pretty cheap. It was a home run for us because I, I found this thing like in the threes, and it was one of these things where they had two gigantic, or they had a, they had a gigantic fluky two-part contract that blew their numbers through the roof. And the stock had a huge run and I, I wound up selling it, I think like in the sevens and I think it ran higher. This all happened in, over the last year or so. And then it kind of collapsed and I bought back a lot of what I sold, but it's a small position for us because they have a lot of cash and the CEO explicitly, he just, he just made two sort of small acquisitions and he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm looking for acquisitions. I, I don't like that, but it's just so cheap that I want to have a small position, what we used to call it when we were bankers. I don't, you ever hear the expression sh uh, schmuck insurance? Mm -hmm. You ever hear that? <laughs> that mm -hmm. one's fresh yep. to me. Schmuck, schmuck insurance was like, if you sell somebody a company that has some potential, and all of a sudden, like the day they buy it, it starts getting massive orders and stock quadruples or quadruples in value. And then you look like a schmuck because you... You sold it to them exactly at the at the wrong time. So schmuck insurance is like you keep a little equity stub or a little piece of it or a little warrant or something. So if it does take off, you don't look like a total schmuck for having sold it too cheaply. So my version of schmuck insurance is, okay, I'm not totally comfortable with what I'm hearing here, but there is potential here and it is cheap. So I'll keep a small position. So that's that's JCS. We have a small position there. Yeah. So... I wanted to ask you about your public figure, your sort of reputation. I would call you both both in terms of the Tesla stuff and then also you mentioned, I think at the top, but political oriented stuff. I would call you a, the Charlie Murphy line from the Chappelle show, a habitual line stepper. You like to, where, you know, my man got too familiar and I ended up having to whip his ass, man, you know, because, you know, he would step across the line. Habitually, he's a habitual line stepper. You're not shy about. Oh, I thought you were going to call me politically uninvestable. <laughs> <laughs> I would, that you know, I, 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 way, I don't mean political. I don't mean politically because I tend to make fun of all politicians, and you know, I'm sort of a moderate libertarian. I mean politically because what allocator is going to invest with a guy who just doesn't give a shit and makes these jokes and these comments, right? Well, so go ahead. Yeah, I think that's, so I guess I'm just curious how you like, yeah, it, it, what the implications are. You're somebody that I would say crosses the line. How do you, is there, is this just, this is just how you, you enjoy this? Like, cause yeah, you're right. It doesn't seem like something that's going to attract allocators. It's not that you necessarily want to with the stocks that you're trying to invest in, but like, how do you sort of think about the way you, Right. That's a great question. And here's my answer. And it, it ties into what you just said. I would like to grow this fund ideally. And it's, a, it's just a fraction of that now. I would like to grow this fund to like 50, 50 million and then cut it off. You know, at 50 million, I could find enough interesting nano caps and, you know, have enough offsetting shorts where I think this thing could work. But more than that, it couldn't work. I mean, I can't, I couldn't run hundreds of millions of dollars or even a hundred million. And it would be very hard to get involved with a 30 million market cap company, unless I, unless I took like a 15% position and went on the board. I don't want to do that. I don't want to sit on a board and I don't want to have to file 
13 Ds. So I have the luxury of not needing to worry if I offend a pension fund because there is no freaking way in the world a pension fund is going to come into my fund. Even if my, well, you know, the first few years I had this fund, the performance was gangbusters, basically before I found Tesla. And even, even a few years after that, I had some great years actually. And I got a lot of calls from fund to funds guys. And almost all of them, I said, hey, thanks, but no thanks. I don't want that kind of money, that kind of hot money. It doesn't work. If I buy a $30 million company and I'm going to sit on it for two or three years before I get my maybe double or triple or maybe better, but if it trades $30,000 a day and some, some allocator gave me $5 million and, and it's a 10% position for me, right? And I got to get out of his half a million dollars worth when it trades. I don't want to have to deal with that. So all of my invest, first of all, the, the, you know, the fund has gotten smaller in terms of LPs, but my remaining LPs, I'm the biggest guy in the fund. And then I have, you know, some some immediate family who are who are in it with me. But the outside guys who who at this point have all become pretty good friends and I knew them beforehand, they're almost all hedge fund guys. They're like, yeah, I like this nano cap thing. And so a lot of them are in my fund for the nano cap, or I should say a lot of them, because I don't have that many investors, but the ones who are, some of them are in the fund just to get my sort of nano cap ideas. And to buy them sort of right after I do, uh, you know, I'll be like, hey, the fund, here's a new position in the fund, guys. If you're interested, you might want to take a look. And so they sort of stay in the fund because then in their PAs, because not in their funds, their funds are bigger. Sometimes they'll buy this, they'll buy these things too. So, you know, whatever I've cost them on Tesla, some of these guys, they've made multiples on that being long things like AVNW or the last trip of DAIO or whatever. So my, my ideal investors are actually sophisticated individual financial people who like that strategy and are like, yeah, I can see what, what's going on with Tesla because I'm getting killed on it too, in my PA. You know, a lot of these guys are. So those are my ideal investors. I, you know, not, not some pension fund that, that I have to worry about, oh, I offended them because I said AOC is a commie. Well, that's too effing bad. You know? <laughs> By the way, that's funny because you know, not so much now with the whole COVID thing, but I would often meet guys for beers after after the market closed. Guys would like DM me who would be like, hey, Mark, you know, I've been following you for three years and I'm in town and, and uh, you know, sometimes they live in town, but sometimes you're here on a business trip and hey, you know, you have time to grab a beer. And I'm like, sure, I'll meet anybody for a beer. So, so many of these guys I met, a lot of them are hedge fund guys also, but some of them are, are just in other industries. They're like, man, your shit is so funny, but I can't like it or retweet it because I'd be out of a job like instantly. So if I throw a joke up there and, it, and it, I, I think the multiplier for whether a joke is good is, is somewhere between like 10x and 20x. So if I, and you can't always tell, like, you know, I did some part-time stand-up in the 90s um, just for fun. And, you know, you, you'd write material and think it would be great and you go up there and sometimes it would just bomb, right? And other times something you weren't sure about would kill. And you don't, the only feedback you have for that here is sort of that, that like button, right? I'll throw up a joke and if it gets 10 likes, well, that probably means at least 200 people liked it, which is great. But if it gets one or two I mean, likes, I'll ten, delete ten, it. 10 likes for me is like going viral. So, well, yeah, but you know, so, <laughs> so, but you know, but, but if it gets like one or two likes, then I know like out of however many people are out there, like barely anybody liked it, then I'll delete it. By the way, just, you know, just for the record, almost always with very rare exceptions, if I throw up a, 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 a racy joke of some kind and I delete it, it's not because 
oh, it's a racy joke. I changed my mind. It's just because it didn't work and it, and it didn't look like it was getting any laughs. You know, if it's getting laughs. I, I always tell you, tick, tick, TikTok open mic night. I, <laughs> I threw up one Epstein joke before he had killed himself when he was still in jail. And it had to do with, um, with that annoying chick who's always lecturing us on climate warming, uh, global warming. What's her name? Oh, the girl, Gretchen. The girl. Greta. Greta, 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 Greta Thornberg, Greta, yeah. right? Yeah. And it was like, I, I'm not going to repeat the joke. That's the only joke I ever took down. And, and the reason I, <laughs> I got calls from people you'd know who were like, who follow me anonymously, and they're like, Mark, that is a career ending joke. And I actually took it down. And the only reason I took it down was because I was afraid Twitter would like ban me for it. <laughs> Otherwise, I would have looked it up. So other than that, I can't think of any joke I ever took down other than that it just wasn't, in hindsight, it was like, oh, that's, I guess that's not that funny. People aren't digging it. I mean, I threw one up over the weekend. You probably saw Michael J. Fox at Parkinson's joke. And yeah. So I, it, what, what I'm hearing is that you've learned from Elon Musk that it's okay to use aggressive adjusted numbers when you're factoring through your Twitter likes. <laughs> well, only because I've, I've met so many people who, who have told me that. You know, like that shit's funny, man, but I can't, I can't like that or retweet that, you know? So, yeah. So I've just got, I've gotten a handle on what's working and what isn't. Yeah. That's, that's, yes. <laughs> I'm Tesla, I'm Tesla-ing up the numbers in my head on this material. I believe that's what we call a bubble, right? Everybody, everybody <laughs> yeah. rounds up. So Akram, anything else from you? Any other uh she's that's a lot. Maybe in terms of the we, we did discuss the the EV mania. So when you go back to Tesla last year, it was like a 30, 40 billion dollar company. And like you said, do you now have I mean Nikola hit 50 billion? Uh by the way, Tesla has not been a 30, 40 billion company in a long, long time. It was around I, I the lowest, I think the lowest it's gotten since I've been shorted was maybe 150 for a short period of time. And and back then, I don't I don't remember. I'm gonna say there were maybe 120 million shares outstanding. So what's that? One oh yeah, you know, you're right. Yeah. It, it was it was it was it, right. it was like it was like 35, 35 billion or so. You're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah, you're right. I remember October. I mean that's the point. I'm saying that there is now there's Nikola traded to 50. Uh, this other one is now 50. You've got, you've got like what, like half, like a oh, dozen. Okay. Yeah, I hear. Oh, you, you said this earlier in this conversation. You're like, well, maybe, maybe Tesla is the best relative value or the cleanest dirty shirt. Yeah, I mean, so the, whole, I mean the whole thing is such nonsense. I don't know. I mean, is that is that a possible theory? Yeah, it's a, it's a theory that'll that'll work until it falls apart, right? Well, well, my question for you is, have you given thought in that sense? With let's say, let's argue that rational analysis here is kind of irrelevant. And like, you know, here we are talking about competition. And I mean, when I talk to people about Tesla, I get three camps. I get one where they they want to argue the software company and autonomous driving and a, a platform. I get two who want to argue with me the energy grid. So it's an it's an energy integrated energy company. Forget automotive. Automotive is not your company. What does that mean? It's, I don't know. Let's, I mean, but like that's, that's, that's no, essentially, that's essentially, if you ask, well, look, them, that's the point. So for me, I'm, that's out of my element when you get there. If you start talking to me about the battery technology and the solar and the EV cells and that there's going to be a grid of uh, charging stations, 
and that they're going to control that and they're going to be selling into the grid. Yeah. By the way, I'm going to tell you two things. Number one, which I actually coincidentally tweeted about this morning, they just buy their batteries like every other schmuck on the street. And they announced a new deal this morning with LG to buy batteries for the Model Y in China. And number two, their energy division, what's it called? They have a name for it, but it's basically the energy, solar batteries, everything. Last quarter, that division had a gross margin of 3%. I mean, it's a shitty, shitty, no money business. So, and then by the way, now you're going to tell me how people tell you it's a software company. And what I'll say to them is what I'll say to you is, okay, great. Show me all the software companies that have gross margins in the teens. Once you adjust for Tesla's, you know, emission credits and the and the fraudulent warranty reserve, they have a gross margin that's probably mid to low teens. There isn't a software company on the planet Earth that has a gross margin in the teens. So anyway, go ahead. Sorry, what were you no, saying? No, I'm, I'm with you on that, right? So like, there's there's a, there's three different shifting narratives, and uh, at least on the energy side, I don't really have an opinion. I can't speak to it. I always left that alone. But on the software side, I obviously have a much stronger opinions and, and I'm much more comfortable, particularly with artificial intelligence stuff, talking about that. But when I look at them each separately, and then I look at where we're at today and what's happened, and I say, our, I mean, like Tesla in of itself is now, it's got these companies that, like you said, are essentially doing almost nothing in comparison to Tesla, trading at the market caps that Tesla in of itself just had less than a year ago. So if you're looking at that market, like somebody messaged me a couple of days ago and was like, Akram, we, we, need to, we need to get on top of shorting this EV bubble. Like this is- So here's forget- the problem with that. And, and, and by the way, okay, so what are you saying? Like, why, why wouldn't somebody theoretically do a, a pair of long Tesla and short the other crap? I mean- forget, I'm not even saying that. I'm saying that there's a whole basket of second and third tier. I'm afraid right? to short a Chinese, a manipulated Chinese company. I'm afraid- you know, right. I remember I remember when Neo was in the twos yeah. and, and and should have been going out of business, right? They couldn't even make the next debt payment or whatever. And and there were a lot of Tesla Q guys who were short Neo and urging me to short it. I'm like, I'm like, dude, I'm not shorting any fucking Chinese company because of the games that they can Well, play. so because that's so. interesting because that was like in May. And I'm actually uh, I'm friends with a guy who 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 pitched the short idea. And I was like, look, Tesla, like if you want to hedge the Tesla mania, go long Neo. Right. That was <laughs> well. That, that was, was that was Andrew Left's idea, by the way. Did Andrew pitch that to you? I know. You no, he did not pitch that to me. Andrew. But, Andrew called me up one day. He's like, "Mark, I have the greatest idea for you, and you can tweet about it, whatever." And and by the way, I've never. I've literally. I, I you may have met him. I've literally never met Andrew. We've just spoken very rarely, and not. Actually I know. I know him time. very, very, very well. Yeah. yeah so we you. haven't spoken actually in a long time. We first. I think he first originally reached out to me about the Tesla thing before he got smart and gave up on it. But anyway, and I'm like, listen, man, I can't, maybe you'll make a lot of money there, but I can't get comfortable buying that piece of crap. But as it turned out, I don't know what he ever wound up doing with it because I think, I think when he pitched it to me, it was almost $10, seven, $8 or something. And, and it, it took a dive after that. It went down to the twos. And then of yep. course, of course, here we are. So look, my philosophy on this, and, and it, it has not worked at all, obviously, including today. But you know, my thought is, it's a lot harder to keep a now it's a five hundred billion dollar bubble afloat. You know, it was a four hundred billion bubble. It was a three hundred billion bubble, right? It was a two hundred dollar billion bubble. It was a hundred billion dollar bubble. It's a lot harder to keep a hundred billion dollar bubble afloat 
than a 20, 30, or $40 billion bubble. But it's been happening. So what the hell do I, I mean, what do I know? I know it's, there's, I, well, I you actually, but you didn't have, you didn't have the depth of that market before, right? So you probably now have, I mean, I like, I, it would require a lot of work actually to start it. Cause I even just looked at it this weekend. You got about 30 new names between EV autonomous or whatever. And Neo, yeah. Andrew had pitched Neo as, I mean, obviously Andrew's shifted to a bull on Tesla. And then he had a period where he, where he pitched Neo as a long last year. And then Neo collapsed in February. Then Tesla exploded. And Tesla continued to explode, and then Neo came back down with the crash in the market. So, I mean, you had Tesla roughly around where it's trading two weeks ago, and Neo's still trading again at two or three dollars, and that was like mid-May, right? And then since then, Neo, I mean, is what like it's like twenty x. Uh, the only other thing I've seen do as well is Tupperware. Well, <laughs> so so here's the other interesting thing about this. Logically, you would think that money would be pouring into the Neos and the X-Pang and whatever, I don't know, Workhorse and all these. Fisker. And Fisker, and that the money would be coming out of Tesla. That these people would be saying, oh, well, let's look at Tesla's numbers. Oh, their numbers actually are stalling out in all these territories. And, and these other guys are growing like crazy. And that people would be getting bored with Tesla and pour into those other stocks. And actually, that seemed to be happening with Tesla over the last few weeks. I don't know if you noticed, but volume had kind of dried up. And it was kind of drifting down a little and not doing anything. Well, all those other EV companies were absolutely flying. So my theory was, I was even in a tweet about it. I didn't. And my theory was, hey, people are just getting bored with Tesla. They're moving on to the new shiny objects. But then the, the bang, the S&P inclusion, totally threw that whole thing out of whack. And, and Tesla went nuts again. So I would have thought there's only so much money in the world that can go into these stupid stocks. And it'll come out of Tesla and go into the you know, the prettier girls on the, on the block, but it's not happening. Obviously it's going into all of them. So. So that's when you, th you sit there and say, well, maybe, maybe it, this is as easy to explain as a, you know, a trading mania that you've onboarded 20, 30 million new young traders, and they all kind of identify and connect with the stuff more easily. There's a lot of liquidity. And for some reason, whether it's algorithmic trading or whatever it is, because like you said, you're not moving Tesla the way it's trading more than Apple and has been since January right. without serious, something is driving the, the, the trading behavior. And that to me has always been, you know, knowing you over the years, but like in general, just the last year, we can sit and have a conversation about Zoom being a bubble or this SaaS stock. But there is something that's happened in the business where the business is up 100% immediately because of COVID. A Tupperware, I mean, was about to die and then COVID comes along. And people are, are eating at home for a year and it's reinvigorated a business like that. And you can rationalize how Right. Yeah. If this is right. This this is this is this stock is in a complete and total data free zone. So look, exactly. so, to your, so to your point about you know, 20 million young traders are like, oh, Tesla, 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 and they're a chunk of this, which which they probably are, although Obviously, the S&P thing probably means hedge funds hoping to buy it and dump it to the indexes. But these 20 million traders, so when those 20 million traders actually get a ride in their uncle's Taycan and their older brother's Polestar and their grandfather's electric Audi or whatever, you know, that's when they realize what's going on and they just haven't done it yet. You know, they haven't done it. The, the, the concept of Tesla is nothing special has not sunk into them yet because there aren't enough of these other EVs out there for them to have taken a ride in. But do you think that there's any chance you're underestimating the 
the cult of Musk in the sense that for the younger generation, and I've interacted with a lot of them, you know, er, right out of college, you know, early 20 year olds, they worship him, whether it's SpaceX and the trips to the moon. And granted, for, for those who are familiar with their history, it, it, it's a different story. But I mean, the, the entrepreneurial story for that that is behind him is something that there's a generation that does look up to him significantly. Yeah. What's interesting is he has lost a lot of the American left. Like well, his behavior the last year, I mean, for me personally, right. I, I'm, not, I'm not happy with him. I mean, I, I wouldn't characterize myself as the American left, but I would say that his, the way he's responded with, with COVID early on and then recently with the testing, I mean, you're just like, what are you doing, dude? Yeah, well, COVID, COVID lost him a lot of people on the left, but he was, he was losing them even before that. It started around the time of the cave diver. Like in the same weekend, I think, he insulted the cave diver and said the media were like a bunch of scumbags and he was going to start his own media. And so things started turning on him then. And, and, and so I guess what I'm saying is I think his cult is getting smaller and smaller. And the people who are in his cult now don't really have, I don't think, enough buying power to, to keep this thing inflated forever. I mean, it, the, the key is going to be what happens after the S&P. I mean, I tweeted people, the bag holder quotes guy got me, which I don't mind. He's funny. You know, I deserve it. When I said, you know, this is the last catalyst. But, you know, Tommy Thornton, if you follow him on Twitter, he's got hedge fund telemetry, which is a good technical, technically oriented newsletter. You know, Tommy said very seriously, he said, this is the last catalyst. You know, he sort of said the same thing I said. And, and I think it is. But I don't know when it ends. I mean, they might, you know, maybe they bought enough stock now or maybe they keep buying it until December 22nd. I don't know. But I, but I don't think the cult that you're talking about, the guy who can afford one or two shares of Tesla, the, those people can't keep this thing going. And, and they will drift away when they ride in their uncle's Tycon. Well, that's the kind of that's the weird thing about it, though, Mark. Though, because it, it's still very hard to look at this company. Because people will tell you, you know, the typical whatever investor will be like, "It's discounting the future, autonomous, this, whatever." But you know, forget that. But the way it's traded since between between December and February, and then that stretch in in let's call it April May, there's an element to it where. It's the type of trading you would have expected out of a company that like is a lot COVID lottery winner, you know, Amazon and Shopify and so Zoom. So again, but this goes back to it being driven more than anything by the crazy call option buying. I mean, it, this even happened last week. I think Thursday, I think Thursday, somebody or some people bought like, I don't know, 35,000 contracts Thursday morning expiring the next day at $500. As it as it happened, the stock went out under that. It went out actually at the four eighty nine. I thought it would go out at four ninety nine, but somebody spent you know it was thirty five thousand contracts. At, I don't know, call it five dollars a contract. I'm kind of half making up the numbers, but I'm in the ballpark. That's a big financial commitment of options expiring the next day. So, but that's what's driven this thing supposedly. You know, I mean, there's been a bunch of articles about it. It wasn't just me, and even Zero Hedge wrote about it. And I think the journal. I mean, I I, look. I remember December. I mean, I traded Tesla calls in in the week before it took off. Actually, I lost forty thousand dollars right before it started moving. Remember when Jonas had his whatever, (laughs) had his commentary? It was like three twenty. It was it just had gone sideways for two weeks, and I was like, this thing is. 
going to be a little bit of a speculative frenzy for the next four weeks. I'll, I'll punt on it. And it was just something I was punting, you know, for to hedge, you know, my short side of stuff that I was trading. And the expired worthless, Jonas had like some comment on a Thursday. And then it went up on average 15% a week for the next six weeks. Yeah, and J Jonas is just, he cannot possibly, he cannot possibly believe the nonsense that he's spouting in his reports. And, you know, he, he covers his ass by saying, well, but on the other hand, if things go wrong, you know, then it's only worth whatever. He can't possibly believe this crap, you know. I mean, and well, I mean, at, the, at, at the end of the day, at mean? the end of the day, it has to be rationalized, right? So, I mean, I read his report uh, after you sent it to me, and <laughs> I mean, it's like he does make certain. Like, there's some things where you can sit and you want to be nitpicky, but like I said, is it even relevant with two different EV companies that have almost no revenue at fifty billion dollar uh, valuations, right? Well, so, if you're asking I mean, me, or the listen, they're all they're all bubbles. If you're asking me, if if something that should go from 50 billion to uh, I don't know one billion is a is a bigger bubble than something that should go from 500 billion to I don't know 15 billion, well, not really. I mean, maybe percentage wise, but but Tesla is overvalued by 480 billion, and the other one's only overvalued by 39 billion, right? So I don't know. I mean, how do you want to look at it? But it depends on how you want to move the needle, right? You, if, you, if you've increased the Fed's balance sheet by $7 trillion and the idea was to support the entire economy and that money just flows into one sub-segment, I mean, <laughs> is, is that maybe exactly the scenario we're dealing with? It could where be. You just, it where could you, be, where you can't explain it. Look, I mean, you know, in my experience and in your experience and in every experienced person's experience, these market sector Fed bubbles burst it we got to be real close but look i fought that before but you know that means we're just closer you know i'm not saying the whole market i'm not saying the whole stock market is going to burst but they'll move on to something else i, I mean you can't have tesla at 500 billion dollars what the hell is like a, a, a high quality company like cisco at 140 days. billionaires it's actually it's actually just almost the size of i mean it actually came back recently but it was down at 34 dollars about two weeks ago and uh it was almost smaller than zoom uh, uh, of course i mean zoom zoom is generating serious margins thanks to covid but i mean yeah you could like a subdivision of of cisco yeah. got bigger than cisco in in 12 uh, months uh, you know or like you know intel i mean okay they got problems and you know that more than i do but they still have remarkable factories, remarkable technology, and it's it's half the market. It's less than half. It's forty percent the market cap of of Tesla now. I mean, at some point, people are like, "Okay, Tesla's not growing. Let's find a sexy new story, you know, or it's minimally growing, or it's only growing by by slashing prices." And then and then look, the other factor is we've pointed to all kinds of crazy accounting, and at some point, you would think PwC would be like, "Guys." This you can't do this anymore. After Wirecard blew up, which was not, I think, not a PwC client, right? I think it was was it ENY or something? But anyway, I think it was Ursula Young, yeah. The, the PwC CEO, and you can find it. There was an article about him in FT. I even tweeted it. Expressly said, "I am instructing, you know, all of my audit." I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said, "I'm instructing all of my audit partners through this company to very, very, very carefully." look at every single 
racy company that we're auditing. <laughs> you know, kind of like the, and you know, nothing fits that description more than Tesla. It'll, so it'll be interesting to see what happens in the in the year end audit this quarter. No, fair enough. That's a good point. I mean, but I, I mean, again, at the end of the day, I I, I don't know because. Like I said, uh, we saw Elon, we were talking about this before we started this call, when he, he tweeted the Forbes article warning about SPACs because there's been literally a dozen yeah. EV SPACs in like the last four weeks. And he's like, buyer beware, you know, caveat emptor coming from him, which is just ironic because everything that's being SPAC is a new competitor. <laughs> so, I mean, his sense well, of humor. Well, obviously, that's why he says it. You know, he pretends, oh, I just want to save the world. But then... You know, then then he starts whining if, if. Well, I mean, it is. It's it's funny on both ends, right? And you know, I mean, if you if you look at, I mean, look, one of the impressive things about having been short Tesla as long as as you have, like you were saying, you know, it's eaten into your gains. The the, the counter is like the, the fact that you stay in business, running money, doing this is a testament well, to discipline look, and, I mean, and risk management, it's, right? It's I mean, at the business. end of the day, yeah, but it it, it is risk management. But it isn't also. I mean, you know, it was a really big position, right? So, you know, I mean, we're still down this year. Even after this great month, we're probably down a yeah, ballpark 10% this year, something like that. And last year, I think I was down like 9%. So, okay, yeah. So you could say, well, but the stock is up a thousand percent, Mark. Yes, so, I mean, yes. yeah. and other, pe other people, and, and it's been I've a big seen position. it. They would, they would have blown up. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I've probably, you know, I don't want to, I don't, I mean, don't quote me on this. And, you know, so this, I'm, I'll say right off the bat that this is not the least bit exact, but, you know, I've probably missed, I don't know, 30 or 40% of, of the move by continually stopping myself out and then, you know, re-entering whatever, 20, 30, 40, $50 higher. And then getting that stopped out. $30 higher and then re-entering that $30 above that. You know what I'm saying? So, so if the stock, you know, went from zero to a thousand or from one to a thousand, it's not like I was short for all thousand. No, no, you know, I, I get it. Been, I mean, I, I understand, I understand how you've done it. Yeah. From one to 10 and then from 20 to 30 and then from 40 to 60, you know, from eight. So, you know, and of course the other thing is I just naturally stopped some out so it doesn't get even bigger than it was. They, I run a concentrated fund, and you know, at cost, I'll have as much uh, as a third of the fund in any one idea. And occasionally, not too often, I had a third of the fund in that Tesla short, and that's what like really destroyed us, you know. And then I've had it five, ten percent, fifteen percent, twenty percent, whatever. So you know, typically I've run it at about, at least in more recent times, around like one fifth. Of the fund and 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 capped it there. Other than you know maybe I'll throw a little bit more on during the day, but stop it out by the end of the day so I don't get caught overnight. But yeah, but look, obviously I was way early on this in terms of what the stock did. I don't think I was way early fundamentally, but so what? Have you ever given thought to? I mean, as someone who's shorted many a times, have you ever given thought that this is just not worth the headache? You know, I shorted in Vitae, which I think you shorted as well last yeah. year, and made money, closed it out in, in, in December just because it became 
Absolutely. I mean, for me, I don't know, personality wise, just like enough people just being where you get to the point where you're like, this is just too much of a headache. It's got too, the person has sold the story to retail very well. We discussed this. I don't know if you listened to our podcast. We had Jamie on and I know you've met Jamie before. And Jamie was just talking about, look, frauds compound till they don't. When you're dealing with someone who is selling a story, whether you want to call it fraud or don't want to call it fraud. And and like the fine, the fine line between what the, you know, the wizard of Oz type of mentality that has to go into it. I mean, you have, you've had Elon Musk essentially say twice that I was bankrupt, but you guys didn't know about it then. (laughs) I mean, mean, listen, for a a public company that's a bit institution or, you know, I mean, what board went to fire them, but what institution wouldn't have immediately dumped his stock after the guy tweeted a fraudulent buyout of his company? Right then, this became brand new territory, right? <laughs> yeah, the four, the four, the four twenty tweet, right? I, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, you know, Ron Barron or Capital Research or Daily, which was supposedly big... backed by the Saudis and then funding secured, and I mean, I mean, whoever the big holders were, well, those guys got C- screwed because they just missed out on three three hundred billion dollars. <laughs> but no, but when a CEO, right? When a CEO tweets literally a fraudulent, which he settled with the SEC, made up buyout story and you don't immediately dump the stock. I figured that I figured the stock was a goner after that. Well, what did I know? Right. And of course, and of course, what board wouldn't fire the CEO within hours? Sorry, Elon, you're gone. Well, of course, the board that doesn't do that is the board that's compensated like eight figures per year. So 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 that's the point. So the other side of the the other side of this argument, and I mean for, for a growth investor, whatever it takes. There is a mindset here where you go back to, and Daniel, you know, you, you were discussing it earlier as well in terms of the regulatory environment and a fundamental change, whether you want to call it on structurally as we since financial crisis through the Trump administration to where, I mean, Elon does come and tell you, hey, by the way, in June, we were almost out of money to keep the lights on, right? And <laughs> But we, we did X, Y, and Z. In other words, Tesla Q was 100% right. Correct. Right. And in fact- so, I almost never do things with options. You know, I have a few options stories, but I, I remember just for the hell of it, buying some short-term, you know, what did we used to call them? Other people call them shit parts, some short-term bankruptcy puts, and they should have actually paid off. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> but yeah, so that so so you you have a guy. It's, he's almost to a degree taunting. But on the flip side, this becomes lore for an amazing success story, right? Because I, I will say when we discussed the uh, the Nikola CEO and his whole mess and, and whatever happened, and you can see the shyster element of, of, of certain things he was doing. And part of the contrast was like, look, I mean, Elon was at PayPal. He has done what he's done. He was almost broke. He does tell the story. And I mean, I remember in Dubai, I mean, we, we dealt with the Tesla IPO and, and they came out with Daimler and they were looking for money from, from, from Abu Dhabi at the time. And the narrative is this guy put his entire net worth into it, almost wiped out. He's like, you know, he's on Sergey Brin or was it Larry Page's couch? You know, he, he borrowed a quarter million dollars from him. That is something that people look at as, you know, a testament to success. And, and it's, it's, it's part of this element of running a public company that essentially is, is this something that we used to be willing to accept with a private company well, wait a minute. that you have is a pedigree a, by the time you're public? Well, hold on. Is it acceptable to lie to investors about the status of the company? Well, well th- th- I mean, again, this is I don't, I don't know where you're at on this. I don't know where, where the consensus is today. But 
Theranos <laughs> is viewed. Theranos is viewed as a fraud. He's viewed as someone who made it work. Right, and, but he didn't. But he didn't. Really... And what's the what's the fine line between the two? Like one, of, both of them have not been transparent with their investors. If the lights were going out and you're a public company, and you're and and you're telling me one thing and you're projecting something else, and meanwhile, you know, like you're 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 supporting a thirty forty billion dollar market cap while you're almost out of cash. That's how investment banks fail, right? It happens overnight. They everybody pulls out on you. Yeah. For Tesla, you didn't have that because he's managed somehow to keep it tight-lipped and, and and make it work. Or is it just is it is there an element to it that's storytelling and he's sensationalized it and it wasn't really as bad as it was at those moments? I my, I suspect it was as bad. I mean, Jonas even had a a call where he said, "Remember that call? It was like you know the script came out of the recording and he's like he basically said this is now a restructuring situation. Remember that?" Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, make it work. I, I mean, I mean, he, he did produce the car, unlike Theranos. Right. And the car does work. But he also lies about so many things about the car and the capabilities of it and this stuff. So it, it's basically it would be like if Theranos made the product and then lied about everything about the product. But the argument is with, <laughs> with what he's doing that, you, you know, to be a disruptor, you're going to eventually get there. And that's his mindset. Well, and so for a lot of people, about, that's acceptable. So, right. So that, so that, that's fake it till you make it. That's, that's that attitude. I don't know. Look, it's illegal. Somehow he's gotten away with it. Whether, whether, whether somebody is okay with it as an investor, my answer to that is, well, you know, how do you know when he's ever telling you the truth? You know, and, and as long as the stock price is going up, they don't care. And when the stock collapses, all of a sudden they'll care a lot. So, um, but it's illegal to fake it till you make it. <laughs> so, but apparently he, he's, he's never been prosecuted for it, right? I mean, they look at it and, and who knows, they, walk, they, they step away. So do you think that, that this has rubbed off and this current market environment is reflecting oh, sure. that? Oh, there's no question. Jay Clayton has, has been the worst. SEC chair in terms of stopping corporate fraud in, in my lifetime, maybe the history of the SEC since, since it was founded. I mean, you know, look, he's fine on, he's fine on catching the, the fraudulent money manager. Probably most of that comes in from via tips and complaints. Some retired guy in Arizona says, I asked for my 100000 back and he's not giving it to me. And the SEC is like, oh, let me look into that. They've been very good on that, which is an important function. And I commend them for that, you know, the guys who have the fake funds or whatever. And they seem to have been pretty good on insider trading stuff, which some of it is seems kind of petty, but whatever. If you're doing it to set an example for the market, okay, fine. So on those two functions, if they have a three-tiered stool, three-tiered whatever, they've been fine. But the third one about corporate deception and fraud, they've been god-awful. And of course, Tesla is the number one poster child for that, right? Yep. I mean, is that is that something that does not get examined till another bubble has effectively burst? Well, and maybe, or, or maybe- Like listen, 2000? Maybe, maybe, or maybe Biden brings in People who take their job seriously, both at NHTSA and at the SEC. I mean, clearly Clayton doesn't. I mean, he does, to be fair, he does take it seriously in terms of stopping, you know, the Ponzi style frauds, but he clearly does not take it seriously in terms of corporate, 
deception. But is 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 there a culture that now exists? And I mean, there's a generation of investors who've never seen the stock market decline. They've never seen <laughs> they've never seen essentially being hurt or not rewarded for not being, let's say, prudent with what you're buying. Okay. And they're they're generally have been bailed out every time that there's been a pullback. Yeah. So is there a culture that essentially is now rooted in the government where it's not good to have anything fall asset wise? Well, of course we have that. But what's going to happen eventually is, and I've written about this in my letter and stuff, is you're going to get real inflation. When I'm, you know, second half of next year, probably, you know, would be my guess because, you know, they printed a lot of them too. And when the velocity picks up post vaccine, and then you're just going to get massive PE multiple compression, just like in the 1970s. You know, that's what happened to stocks. And, and of course, they were lower numbers. But in the 70s, you went from a gap PE on the S&P one year of 18. And the next year, it was like seven or something like that. Right. So we're not going to see that now. But so that that's what's going to crash this market is inflation. And we're going to get it. But are, until are, you, in, are you in a COVID hangover camp? Do you think that there's going to be a like the non-COVID economy next, let's call it this time next year. I was looking at forecast models for, let's say, Amazon, Shopify, Zoom, the COVID winners, Clorox, Target, Walmart, et cetera. Do you think that there's a potential risk looming that a certain amount of market share that transfers back to, let's call it tourism, okay, in general, or just what the pre-COVID economy as far as not necessarily for the long haul, we're not going to make a call and work from home or whatnot, but just to shift structurally post-vaccine that feels like a, ma- a major fucking hangover for the COVID winners. Yes, but without inflation, I don't, I don't know how much they go down because you got a Fed which is printing $120 billion a month, right? They're printing 80 for treasuries and 40 to buy mortgages. Is that right? So I know the 80 treasury. Roughly speaking, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So look, that's a lot of money. <laughs> so, you know, until there's inflation, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know that we get a, a big crash, you know, absent if, if Biden, you know, had a health scare and people think it's all of a sudden instantly President Harris. Yeah, the market's going to fucking tank, right? At least for some period of time. And who knows what happens after that? But yeah, I mean, look, you said it and it's everyone knows it. You know, the Fed is. The Fed is going to be able to backstop this market until it loses control of inflation. And then the Fed is fucked, stocks are fucked, treasuries are fucked. And, you know, that's why we all own gold, right? I mean, gold right now is sort of in this little downtrend and no one cares because people are like, ah, there's not going to be any inflation for the next eight, 10 months. What do I need to worry about gold? And so I think that's well, what's what, what about what, what about Bitcoin there? You know, <laughs> I, I I mean, it is that trade that people people do love that trade right there. Structurally, yeah. I, I mean, my answer is gold has stood the test of time for five thousand years, and how old is Bitcoin? Seven, eight years, ten years, and you know, you certainly can't call anything a, a quote unquote store of value that's up ten x in in whatever period of time when inflation is up ten percent. Yeah, you know, what I'm saying? and it's like it's so out of whack that it's obviously, to me, it's obviously a trading sardine. And it's not as if, oh, Bitcoin's going to go to a million dollars, and then it's going to stabilize and move with the CPI. 
So, you know, I suppose you can theorize that. But to me, it's like Bitcoin is just a trading sardine. And I have, I have no opinion on that other than that. I would just never touch it. And, and that anybody who says, well, Bitcoin is the new gold. Well, talk to me in a thousand years. Let's see where Bitcoin is then. Because, because seriously, you're into longevity too, huh? Well, you know, if you have a choice between the two, you know, I'll take gold. And it's, by the way, it's not as if, it's not as if gold is not reacting the way it should. Gold is doing what it should. Gold is up a lot this year, even though lately it's done nothing and you know tailed off a little bit. If real interest rates plunge again, which would happen because inflation is going to soar and the Fed is going to keep rates way too low for too long, gold will fly again. So gold is doing, as far as I'm concerned, gold is doing exactly what it should be doing. And Bitcoin is just a crazy bubble that, that's doing nothing that has anything to do with reality. Sounds like an opinion. <laughs> well, no, but if, if inflation were taking off right now, right, and, and rates weren't, so if real rates were plunging and gold were doing nothing or going down or barely budging on the upside, I'd say, you know what, you're right, this all shifted to Bitcoin. But right now, what I see is gold doing exactly what it should be doing. And Bitcoin going nuts. So Bit Bitcoin could just as easily be Tesla or Neo, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, there's a lot of competitors for that trade, really. Yeah, yeah, but but you know, it's not like it's not like anyone could say to me, "Well, Bitcoin is a new gold because Bitcoin is flying." I'm like, and gold's doing nothing. I'm like, okay, but inflation's doing nothing. So why should gold be flying right now? Well, I printed all that money. Okay, great, but you're plugging a big hole. There's no velocity. Gold had a huge run this year, 30% or whatever it is. Got to digest for a while. Gold is acting exactly how it would act if it were a hedge against inflation. Yeah, you have slack that's that just exists in the economy. By def I mean, granted, this yes. is very, very bizarre. You have record high used car prices. You have certain markets where you can't buy a home because the, the demand is so out of control. And then you have plunging rents in, you know, exactly. in, in San Francisco. And New York and different the variations are there are so many extremes, but net net in aggregate and on oil going nowhere. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Exactly. So I mean, and that reflects that reflects consumption, right? And it reflects a market where, to a degree, a lot of money has gone into into asset prices, essentially. Because I mean, I can see an environment where, let's say, if you if you're in the COVID is dead and its funeral is 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 going to be sometime in the next few months. And by July, we're returning to a, a pre-COVID type of dynamic. People are going to want to sell their stocks and take vacations. <laughs> well, that's an interesting theory. Or, you know, at the very least, we're going to start having some inflation, right? And Well, that will create inflation, right? Because then you're going to find out exactly how wealthy you are if you printed all this money and we're all competing for the same types of things. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, you know, the restaurants will be rehiring and whatever. And, and so if gold doesn't move then, and Bitcoin is still flying, and I'd be like, okay, maybe you, maybe you have a, a good thought there about Bitcoin being in the gold. Right now, I see gold doing exactly what it should do, and, and Bitcoin going nuts, and I suspect going nuts for completely unrelated reasons. You know, Who knows? I mean, people say the, the Bitcoin market is pretty easy to manipulate. I don't know. Have fun with it. You know, it's like, <laughs> you might as, as far as I'm concerned, you might as well bet, you might as well line up like, you know, 
four cockroaches and a frog in a box and bet on them, right? Paint little numbers on their backs, right? Like, you know. <laughs> I, mean, I think that was in Satoshi's white paper. I think that was the original. Yeah, right. You know, but that's that's the same thing to me as betting on Bitcoin. Well, I mean, you know, it's I mean, it's a good way to, to keep money from the government, and uh, you well, know, that's, that's probably going to be an important just, thing. That is not going to happen, right? Governments are not going to tolerate that. I mean, there's, you know, there's a huge amount of illegal activity is facilitated by that stuff. And, and I don't know, they're already cracking down on it, right? So I don't know the mechanics of what they're doing, but that, that will not be tolerated, right? You know, I mean, I mean, now if, if some guy freezes the hospital website and says, pay me 50,000 in Bitcoin, or I'm not going to unfreeze your hospital or whatever, you know, I mean, you know, it's always in Bitcoin now, right? That's that can't continue, right? So, how much of the Bitcoin value in the Bitcoin market is this guy's laundering money and some kind of crazy illegal activity? Well, I mean, it's definitely a place to avoid paying taxes, and it definitely is a place to avoid tracing the source of funds. And those are definitely two things that, as it's gone more more mainstream, have tangential elements that I think regulators are going to have to deal with. But right. I mean, we just we, we, we just spent all this time talking about regulators and, and what they don't right. do, do, do deal with. Well, so. Yeah, but the difference is this is money. This is like, you know, it's, it's one thing to regulate car safety and have hands off, but government needs money. So this, this is like the yeah, IRS. No, confidence is is an element. But, you know, you got Jack Dorsey saying what he's saying about Bitcoin. You got all the what guys who love say? it. I mean, Dorsey's a big believer. Obviously, Square Square has been one that's been a big proponent of it. Uh, the the MicroStrategy CEO, I don't know if you've seen him recently. They moved. They're, 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 he's a he's a a holdover from the tech bubble of 2000 analytics software, but like it's become a popular stock because he's moved a significant portion of a lot of their cash, and they have significant cash on balance sheet into Bitcoin. So you're seeing people talk about it from a treasury standpoint. But yeah, I mean, there is that element where if, you know, governments post post COVID and post whatever we've been dealing with election wise are going to have to to fill a major gap of revenue or you're going to just have to print even more money. Yeah. By the way, stocks are flying right now because Trump just tweeted that he's instructing the GSA to cooperate with the Biden transition. Oh, really? Yeah. I he's, did see that Michigan certified <laughs> So, so what do you, what, what do you think is going to happen there? You think he's going to go quietly into the night? Yeah, he's going to go quietly into the night. The S&P is the S&P is is flying and took out today's high. Nasdaq isn't moving as much. But Nasdaq's moving a little, the S&P's moving a lot. Yeah, speaking of pricing in things that have happened again and again and again. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. with the, it's like with, the new phase 1 China trade deal. Yeah. And then the Pelosi-McConnell stimulus, that was the the Look, let's be honest. This all started, this run in this market started with the repo activity last October. And you saw you you had a huge move in Apple and Microsoft into the end of last year. And somehow, you know, this COVID came along and we never really even got an explanation for why we needed to inject all that liquidity at the end of last year, which lit a fire under under a few large, like Tesla, Apple, Microsoft and semiconductors, which I mean, you could tie semiconductors to China trade, but then that all kind of coincided with this uh, pandemic, and no one's really, no one's looked back and asked really many questions about structurally what was the issue. Yes, 
I agree. You know, <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you're preaching to the choir. So, you know, a lot of people say this. So, you know, look, I'm glad McConnell has, has sort of held the line on things here, at least. You know, McConnell's like, hey, 500 billion is a lot of money, right? On the next demos. And Pelosi's like, oh, no, it's 3 trillion or nothing. <laughs> I mean, there. Well, I mean, there are two ends of the of the extremes. I don't even really know if he actually if he actually cares as far as it being a lot of money. I don't understand why the Democrats have have refused to budge, relatively speaking. But I mean, both of them are staring at the same dynamic next year. The states need money, and like it looks like, you know, on one end they're going to want to hold it off from the Democratic states because, ironically, the Democratic states are the ones that are hit the hardest. Yeah. Meanwhile, here in New York, you've got. De Blasio doesn't want to lay off anybody. He doesn't want to tell any union that, hey, you guys got to pay for some of your health care. He's just, you know, he's bought and paid for. All these Democratic politicians who run these cities are basically bought and paid for by their unions, except the police unions. The police unions hate them. (laughs) You know, anyway. All right. I think we should wrap there, guys, because if we get into more politics, we could be here for another hour and a half. (laughs) Mark, thank you for coming on and being generous with your time. Enjoyed the conversation and kind of hearing. Obviously, you've built a name for yourself, and it's been a wild ride in the markets and with Tesla. And yeah, we'll see. We'll see if this is the last catalyst, or we'll see what how it plays out. But I, I'm well, sure. One final question: What would it take for you to just abandon the Tesla short? I mean, I would have to think that they actually had a real meaningful proprietary advantage in electric cars or in something. You know, if they don't, it's just the biggest bubble in history. And and of course, as far as I'm concerned, they don't. And and as we're seeing, they don't. That's the answer. All right. All right. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. All right. Thank you very much, guys. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. It was a pleasure. Yeah. Take care. Thank okay, you. Mark. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Razor's Edge. Subscribe to this wherever you get your podcasts. Hit us up on Twitter at, at Daniel Shortman and at Akram's Razor with suggestions, requests, or anything else. We aim to publish this every Tuesday morning and love to hear from you. If you can share this with a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, we'd really be grateful as that will help the podcast grow and improve. This has been a Shortman Studios production. Our theme song is Move On by Soquel. Thank you for listening and see you next week.